Dr. Eric Weiner continued the review of key ASCO papers in breast cancer, beginning with a much-anticipated update of the combined analysis of two U.S.-based randomized trials evaluating adjuvant trastuzumab. Dr. Perez presented an update of the NCCTG and NSABP combined analysis from the trastuzumab trials. And what she presented was that, in fact, as time has gone on, the results have held up, that indeed there is a highly significant difference in terms of disease-free survival between women who received AC followed by paclitaxel and trastuzumab versus those women who received AC and paclitaxel alone, women who had more positive nodes and had estrogen receptor negative tumors were at higher risk of disease recurrence, and I don't think that this is particularly surprising, but really across the entire group, there was a dramatic benefit associated with the use of adjuvant trastuzumab, and there is a significant difference in terms of overall survival as well, although to date that's still, in absolute terms, a relatively small difference, and I suspect that that reflects the fact that the vast majority of these women who were on the control arm and developed metastatic disease went on to receive trastuzumab. And fortunately, many of those women will live with their metastatic disease for an extended period of time. Ultimately, however, I suspect that the differences in terms of overall survival will certainly increase. Dr. Perez also presented some data regarding testing, that is, testing for HER2 within the NCCTG cohort. And both that presentation and other presentations, I think, have led many of us to be a little bit more confused about testing than we were prior to the meeting. And I must say that even prior to the meeting, there had already been some confusion introduced into the whole testing arena based on data over the last few years. Within the group of women who were randomized to receive trastuzumab or not in Dr. Perez's study, it was actually quite hard to identify groups where there was absolutely no benefit for trastuzumab, even when central testing did not seem to confirm HER2 positivity, that is positivity by FISH or by IHC. That said, I think it's very important to remember that all of these patients in the trial were considered to have HER2-positive disease by some laboratory when they went into the study. And the value of going back and retrospectively looking at different subgroups based on central testing, I think is something that is still we're trying to sort out. And finally, the last thing is part of this presentation, Dr. Perez talked about cardiac toxicity and reviewed the data that exists concerning cardiac toxicity on the NCCTG trial. As people know, there was an excess in the incidence of cardiac toxicity for women, particularly those who were randomized to AC with concurrent paclitaxel and trastuzumab. It does not appear that that cardiac toxicity has increased over time, but in fairness, we still don't have long, long-term follow-up. And I think that one concern that does remain is what will happen in terms of myocardial function in the years ahead. And this was highlighted by actually one of the discussants who was a cardiologist from Stanford. One other issue that kind of came out in the original combined presentation was addressed by Edith at that very first ASCO meeting a couple years ago was the issue of simultaneous versus sequential therapy where the trastuzumab is not started until after the chemo. Dr. Perez actually did not update those data in terms of concurrent versus sequential trastuzumab. As people know, in that initial presentation from the NCCTG, the strong suggestion was that there was greater benefit associated when trastuzumab was added concurrently with paclitaxel than when it was given sequentially. That, of course, is somewhat different from what was seen in HERA. Well, perhaps I shouldn't say different. In HERA, all of the trastuzumab was given after chemotherapy, and in spite of that, there was a substantial benefit associated with trastuzumab, whereas in the NCCTG experience, it looked like that in order to get a substantial benefit associated with trastuzumab, you had to give the two treatments concurrently. I think we're waiting for updated data in terms of that analysis practically in the U.S., and I think around most of the world, when a taxane is given, it is now given concurrently with trastuzumab 
because of that presentation that Edith made two years ago. So when do you think we might get some more data on that? Because we kind of just accepted it, and yet there was a lot of controversy about whether enough events, and then all of a sudden, two years later, we still don't have any more information. Yeah. I actually don't know when we're going to get more information. I presume that we will have more information within the next year or two. And I think you're absolutely right, Neil, that there has been this willingness to accept the fact that one needs to give trastuzumab and ataxane together but it will be really nice to see those data. And if for any reason those data change, it would certainly open up an option for women to be able to receive these treatments sequentially if for some reason there were a strong desire to do that in a given patient situation. Now, the other issue about the results based on HER2 testing, which is pretty difficult to figure out, it was also complemented by a presentation by Soon Paik with the NSABP data. Can you talk about that? Soon Paik and the NSABP also presented data where they looked at the results from trastuzumab in the randomized trial based on the IHC and FISH status of the tumor determined centrally. And, you know, what's worth pointing out is that in both of these studies, because testing is imperfect and because in the NSABP trial, central testing wasn't required, and in the NCCTG trial, central testing wasn't required initially, there were a small number of patients, in absolute terms not so very small, although compared to the entire group, it's only a minority, who on central testing had tumors that were both FISH negative and by at least traditional criteria, IHC negative, meaning that their tumors were zero, one plus, or two plus in the setting of a FISH negative tumor. And In both of these studies, there was some suggestion that those patients, in spite of their HER2-negative status centrally, derive some benefit from adjuvant trastuzumab. And it raised the question as to whether, in fact, there might be benefit for adjuvant trastuzumab across a very broad group of individuals, perhaps individuals who, by traditional criteria, don't have HER2-positive disease. And while I think that that's an interesting question, and I think that there are some possible biologic explanations certainly wouldn't lead me to change my approach to patients at the moment, which is that for patients who do not have what I consider to be HER2-positive disease, so either 3-plus by IHC or a FISH ratio of greater than approximately 2, for those patients who do not have that, I would not recommend adjuvant trastuzumab. To what extent do we know the impact of trastuzumab in patients in general in terms of those who are so-called HER2 normal, like metastatic disease, any kind of setting? Do responses occur? Have they been reported? In the metastatic setting, the CLGB was the one group that actually randomized patients who were thought to be HER2 negative or HER2 normal to trastuzumab or not. This was Andy Seidman's trial, which was CLGB 9840, in which women were randomized to receive either weekly or every three-week paclitaxel. And for those women who, as you point out, had HER2-normal disease, they were also randomized to trastuzumab or not. In that trial, in the metastatic setting, as reported by Andy Seidman about three years ago, there appeared to be no statistically significant advantage for the use of trastuzumab there was a very small numerical advantage in terms of response rates for women who received trastuzumab. And I must say that my interpretation of that was that that very small numerical advantage arose either by chance alone or might have been accounted for by the fact that testing isn't perfect and there could have been a small number of patients who had truly HER2-positive disease included in that HER2-negative group. What about patients who've gotten trastuzumab alone, metastatic disease, neoadjuvant disease? What do we know? Have there been responses recorded and with reliably, quote, HER2 normal tumors? I'm not aware of reports, at least with Herceptin given as a monotherapy, where there has been benefit from that treatment in patients whose tumors are not HER2 positive. And if you go back and look at Charles Vogel's study that was published in the JCO a number of years ago, looking at trastuzumab monotherapy as first-line treatment in metastatic disease, and that's probably the purest test. In that study, virtually all of the responses, and that was a study that included about 130 patients, all of the responses were actually in patients who had FISH-positive tumors. Right. You said there might be potential biologic reasons. What might they be? Yeah, so the biologic reasons, 
I think, relate to tumor heterogeneity. And this is a little perplexing, but we do know that not all tumors are HER2 positive throughout the tumor, that in some cases there can be HER2 positive disease sitting next to HER2 negative disease. In all of these patients, a test at some point showed HER2 positive disease. So you might imagine that some of these discordant data are arising from the fact that what is being tested centrally may be a slightly different area of the tumor than what was tested locally. And that perhaps in order to get a benefit from trastuzumab, a woman doesn't need to have a tumor that is HER2 positive throughout it. Now, what makes that a little bit confusing, at least to me, is that most of the data looking at testing in the early stage setting versus the metastatic setting in the same patient has shown a very, very high degree of concordance. The concordance rate between primary tumors and metastases is in the range of 80 to 90%. And it would seem to me that if there were a large number of women who had heterogeneous tumors such that what's recurring is HER2-positive disease in the setting of a mixed presentation at diagnosis, then you'd expect to see a higher rate of discordance. You know, in a way, it kind of reminds me of there was a point in time when there was a number of people, particularly in the UK, who thought that hormone therapy can cause responses in ER-negative disease, all these mechanisms, a little bit kind of similar to what you just said, and then eventually everybody just decided it was the testing was messed up and it doesn't work in ER-negative. Do you think that's the way it's going to work out here? Well, it's certainly the way I hope it's going to work out because it makes more sense to me. I think this does raise questions about whether in the setting of a negative HER2 test, we should ever consider repeating it to look to see either if the tests were done properly or if there might be other areas in the tumor that are HER2 positive. For the moment, I don't think that any of these data are changing my clinical practice, which is that if I have a patient who's had a HER2 test and it is clearly and unequivocally negative, I'm not going to go ahead and repeat it. If it's clearly and unequivocally positive, I'm not going to go ahead and repeat it. And as I've done for the past year or two, if it's borderline, meaning if the IHC is 2 plus, or for that matter, if the fish is in this indeterminate range that's now been said to be 1.8 to 2.2, I'm going to try to do some more investigation either by simply repeating the test or by testing another area of the tumor. Okay. Well, this ASCO was another ASCO with a fair amount of cardiac stuff. I mean, we need to become cardiologists nowadays. You already mentioned some of the cardiac data that Edith presented, but there were also a couple other presentations specifically focusing on cardiac issues in the trastuzumab trial. The first was the one from the NSABP trial. So I actually thought the NSABP presentation on cardiac issues was particularly helpful. It was a very, very thoughtful presentation. As people know, the incidence of cardiac toxicity in the NSABP trial, if anything, seemed to be a little higher in the other trials for reasons that I don't think we fully understand. There's really no reason to account for the higher incidence in that trial than in most of the other studies. But in any case, there were a somewhat higher number of events, and perhaps that allows the NSABP to look further in terms of predictors. And what they found is that in women on the NSABP trastuzumab trial, that both age and baseline EF, as well as being on antihypertensive medications, all predicted for the development of cardiac toxicity. They actually put together a formula that will need to be tested prospectively that would ultimately, if this is validated, allow a clinician with some degree of accuracy to predict the risk that a given woman might have cardiac toxicity. I actually think that the finding that people who are on antihypertensive medications were at higher risk of cardiac toxicity was particularly interesting and particularly important in terms of our day-to-day clinical practice, since a fair number of women who come into our clinics and who receive treatment for breast cancer and specifically treatment for HER2-positive breast cancer are women with a history of hypertension who are on antihypertensives. And if, in fact, that's found in other studies, I think that's well worth noting and something that I would pay attention to when I'm making decisions about the use of trastuzumab, particularly in cases where the indication is somewhat borderline. You know, in my own mind, for women who have large tumors or multiple positive lymph nodes, 
The benefits of trastuzumab are so substantial that for the most part, a small to moderate risk of cardiac toxicity isn't going to dissuade me. On the other hand, when faced with a woman who has stage 1 breast cancer, particularly an older woman who may have hypertension, I think that these are factors that we have to consider pretty carefully. Well, people from the BCRG and maybe the NSABP would say, why even bother with all this? Just give people TCH. It works just as well, and you don't have to deal with it. And so they may be right about that, and it may turn out that for these patients who have cardiac risk factors, that we can eliminate the problem entirely by just eliminating the anthracycline. You know, there were still a small number of patients in the BCIRG trial who did not receive an anthracycline who had some degree of cardiac toxicity. And I think we're just going to want a little more follow-up there and a little more data. But, you know, avoiding the anthracycline certainly does decrease the risk of cardiac toxicity. So you see a patient who's on hypertensive medication for a while, well-maintained. Are you going to think about TCH, or are you just going to look more carefully at their ejection fraction? What do you think you're going to do? So in my mind, TCH is a reasonable alternative for almost any patient. In truth, I still do give AC followed by paclitaxel and trastuzumab in most patients as my preferred regimen. But the presentation from Dennis Slayman at San Antonio last year suggesting that TCH and AC followed by docetaxel and trastuzumab produced very, very similar results, I think was worth paying attention to. I think a lot of people after seeing that presentation started thinking much more seriously about talking about TCH with their patients and using it. I'd like to see a little more data. I'd like to see a publication But that said, I think that particularly for patients who have cardiac risk factors, either age or starting off with a borderline EF or being on antihypertensive medications, I think those are patients that we should strongly consider using TCH in at this point in time. What age? I mean, the NSABP just took it up to age 60 plus as their highest age group, but, you know, I think we're limited by the data. But just for practical purposes, in a patient who has normal ejection fracture, no hypertensive, has no cardiovascular history, what's the age that you start to get a little bit concerned? This is now based on Weiner Gestalt exactly. rather than anything more than that. Absolutely. So I would say over 60 or 65, which doesn't mean that I think it's unreasonable to think about TCH in younger patients either. Right. But where my threshold in terms of worry about cardiac toxicity goes up a lot, that's going to be in women, you know, who are 60 plus. Now, another cardiac paper came out that was pretty interesting, looked at the issue of cardiac safety in patients treated with lapatinib and trastuzumab. Would you comment on that? So this was a study that was presented by Anna Maria Storniolo, who is at Indiana, and she was presenting data from some of the studies that have been done in Indiana, as well as other GlaxoSmithKline-sponsored studies. And the suggestion was that the combination of lapatinib and trastuzumab was quite safe from the standpoint of cardiac toxicity and did not produce substantial cardiac toxicity. You know, those data, at least from the standpoint of the about-to-open adjuvant trial, the ALTO trial, I think are quite reassuring. Ultimately, it'll be in that ALTO trial where we have the opportunity to compare trastuzumab alone, lapatinib alone, the combination of the two, and the sequential use of the two. It'll be in that study where we really get good answers. It was interesting. The vast majority of these people, you know, saw that correctly, had had anthracyclines before. Right. And still, they didn't seem to have any problems. Well, the vast majority had received anthracyclines before. Some, although not all of them, I believe, had had prior trastuzumab before. Yeah, they had. Right. Exactly. And yet... And, you know, many of us have referred to this as the trastuzumab stress test, so that if you've had trastuzumab, you haven't had a fall on your EF, and you can still go on a treatment which requires a normal EF that that may identify a group of patients at pretty low risk. Another paper that at least I was looking forward to seeing is number 524, Mike Press, looking at the old topo isomerase to the continuing saga. What do they present this time? What they presented was that toporisomerase 2, or amplification of toporisomerase 2, is a marker for sensitivity to anthracyclines. I think this is something that none of us are terribly surprised by, What will remain to be seen in the years ahead, and I don't think we're quite there yet, but what will remain to be seen is who really needs and benefits from anthracyclines. For the most part, 
these amplifications in TOPO2 arise in patients with HER2-positive disease, if it turns out that we can safely eliminate anthracyclines from the treatment of patients with HER2-positive disease if we're using trastuzumab, then it may be that there is much less of a role for anthracyclines in general. I think most of us are still using anthracyclines in the non-HER2-positive patients or in the HER2-negative or normal patients. Most of us are still using anthracyclines sequentially with trastuzumab in the HER2-positive patients, but you could easily imagine a time in three or five or 10 years when the use of anthracyclines in the adjuvant setting will decline dramatically. I think that would be a good thing for patients as long as... I think it would be a great thing for patients because just to be a bit more specific, it may turn out that in patients with TOPO2 non-amplified and HER2-negative disease that anthracyclines add very little, if at all, and it may turn out that you simply don't need them if you use HER2-directed therapy in the HER2-positive setting. But again, you know, this is where some people are ready to make this move now. Others aren't quite comfortable yet. And I think all of us will be more comfortable with more data. Now, this paper by Mike Press and the UCLA group, did it say anything fundamentally different than what they presented at the San Antonio meeting in December? So they looked beyond the BCIRG adjuvant trial, and they looked at other trials as well. But I don't think that it necessarily says anything very different from what has been said before. What was presented the year before by the BCIRG group, and specifically by Dennis Slayman, was that if a woman had a HER2-positive and TOPO2-amplified tumor, that it appeared that those women benefited the most from AC followed by docetaxel and trastuzumab, and that in women whose tumors were not amplified for TOPO2, that TCH and ACTH were essentially equivalent. The update this year was that actually the two regimens, ACTH and TCH, appeared to be similar across all women with HER2-positive disease, and that what was unique about the women who had TOPO2 amplification was that even without trastuzumab, those women seemed to be doing well with the anthracycline alone, that is AC followed by docetaxel, And finally, that overall, those women who had TOPO2 amplification actually seemed to be doing better across the board than women who did not have TOPO2 amplification. So I guess the practical thing, if you could believe the data that came out was in the overamplified, theoretically, you could choose between an anthracycline or trastuzumab, maybe you wouldn't need both. Well, you could, although I have to say it's pretty hard for me to imagine as a doctor or putting myself in a patient's position that I would choose an anthracycline over trastuzumab. Sure, I mean, but just in terms of where the curves were, and I guess the other issue is, again, that there would be no, theoretically, again, if these data really play out, you still could utilize TCH. Absolutely. Okay, another paper I wanted to ask you about was number 576, looking at the Oncotype DX assay. I know this study because I was a participant in the research, and what Dr. Kamal did is he actually identified cases from Mayo Clinic records of individuals who had no negative ER-positive breast cancer and had had an Oncotype DX sent. And he first queried six so-called expert clinicians as to their prediction of what the Oncotype DX result would show and what they would recommend in terms of adjuvant therapy for these patients without giving them the score. He then went back to each of us and provided us with the score and asked us once again for our treatment recommendations. And these were your patients? These were Mayo patients. You just saw the data? We just saw the data. So we were given information such as 64-year-old, with an ER-positive, PR-negative, grade 3 tumor that was 2.7 centimeters. Right, okay. Based on those characteristics, we were asked to, A, predict the score. And we weren't asked to predict a specific number. We were asked to predict low, intermediate, or high. And we were then asked to provide a treatment recommendation. So it turned out that as a group of experts, we were actually very good in terms of being able to distinguish lower intermediate from high. That the vast majority of the time, we could identify a tumor as being not high or a tumor being high. 
Is that also using Mayo Clinic pathology? These would have been the results, I believe, from the Mayo Clinic pathology. So we had faith in the pathology. So you might have had better pathology data to deal with than people do in practice. Yes, absolutely. Okay. We weren't nearly as good at being able to distinguish low from intermediate. And in terms of treatment recommendations, about 20% of the time having the score in hand influenced treatment recommendations. And I have to say, I didn't find that result to be terribly surprising. I actually am somebody who has sent a fair number of recurrence scores over the past couple of years. Much of the time, it doesn't seem to change what I recommend to a patient, although it does make both the patient and me more comfortable with that recommendation. But in a small proportion of the cases, and I would define a small as probably somewhere in the range of a fifth to a quarter, it does change what we do. And I think that this experience suggested the same. I think the point you made that this is with Mayo Clinic pathology or that when I'm making these decisions, it's with Dana-Farber and Brigham pathology, I think is an important one because if you can have confidence in your pathologist, then perhaps tests like Oncotype DX are a little bit less critical. On the other hand, I actually believe that Oncotype DX does add, at least to a limited extent, to our ability to make appropriate decisions, even with great pathologists sitting next to us. So there's another paper, Abstract 577, that kind of was a similar kind of thing, looking at the issue of the Oncotype in terms of decision-making. Can you talk about that? In truth, I found that poster, which I didn't have a chance to talk about with the investigators, to be a little harder to understand. But my sense reading through it and looking at the conclusions is that the results in general terms were fairly similar, which is that in at least a minority of the cases, the Oncotype DX information did seem to affect decision-making specifically in that it led to a smaller proportion of patients receiving recommendations to receive chemotherapy. You know, every once in a while, there will be a patient who will have an unexpectedly high Oncotype DX score, and the decision will go from no chemotherapy to chemotherapy. More often than not, the decision seems to go from endocrine therapy plus chemotherapy to endocrine therapy alone. Although, just sort of globally, taking a step back, they seem to find roughly the same fraction of cases that sort of change because of using it, maybe even a little bit more, if I read this correctly. Yeah, that was my sense of it. And then, I guess there was another study done by a U.S. oncology group in Denver, and I think they also found about 25% of cases change. Well, this would make sense. Now, of course, to some extent, this is going to vary depending on the willingness of the clinician without Oncotype DX to recommend against chemotherapy in some situations. If, in fact, what the clinician did were just to take the recommendations from the 2000 NIH consensus conference, where any woman with a tumor greater than a centimeter is potentially a candidate for chemotherapy, and if the clinician were simply to recommend chemotherapy in all of those women, then, in fact, Oncotype DX might have an even greater ability to influence chemotherapy decisions I think in many of these cases, we're dealing with clinicians who are already comfortable backing off on chemotherapy in a proportion of patients. You know, it's funny you mentioned that one centimeter thing, and I remember all the controversy. It seems like so long ago, it was only seven years ago. There's so many things that have happened about that whole issue in the last seven years. It does seem like a long, long time ago. And at the time, I was ballistic about this (laughs) because it just made me absolutely crazy that there would be this statement that any woman with either node-positive disease or, more importantly, with a tumor greater than a centimeter should get chemotherapy. And in fact, the way I interpreted that consensus statement was that any woman with a tumor greater than a centimeter should be considered for chemotherapy, but I allowed myself to consider it very briefly in some people. Yeah, it's interesting because we had this project we've done in colon cancer looking at node-negative stage 2 tumors. And one of the things we've shown is the data in decision-making in the lower-risk situation, breast versus colon. And, of course, the bar to treat is way, way lower in breast. And, you know, there are a lot of reasons for that. But, again, it's kind of interesting that here that one centimeter thing, it's like I don't even remember it anymore. so far beyond that. In my mind, Oncotype DX over the past couple of years has had really two major contributions. One is that for some proportion of patients, it clearly has affected decision-making. 
The other is that it has given doctors and patients confidence in backing off. And more than any other test, it actually has helped fuel the discussion about who should get chemotherapy and who shouldn't. As many people may know, there was an attempt to do a randomized trial of chemotherapy versus not in the U.S. and abroad over the past few years. This was the so-called PER-K trial that was sponsored by the International Breast Cancer Study Group. And in that trial, women were all mandated to receive optimal hormonal therapy and then were randomized to chemotherapy or not. In the U.S., we could get virtually no one to go on the trial. Outside of the U.S., almost no one went on the trial. The trial closed. Now we're doing the same study, essentially TaylorX, but we're doing it informed by the Oncotype DX score, and we can do it. Right. What it demonstrates is that with additional information, and in particular with additional information in the form of a score, a number that people feel comfortable with, that it becomes much more possible and much more comfortable to begin to triage some patients away from chemotherapy. Well, you might find it interesting that our group just did a symposium at the American Society of Breast Surgeons meeting, and I polled 500 surgeons there, and I asked them a question that I've asked before at other meetings with many surgeons present, which is, how do you judge oncologists' use of chemotherapy? And I said, do you think they use a little too much, a lot too much, not enough? You know, what do you think? And specifically, I was asking them in treatment of node-negative patients. And I was really curious to see what they said. And it was amazed because in the past, there's been a lot of fairly reasonable sentiment that we overutilized it. By far and away, the most common answer at this meeting was they use about the right amount. And I wonder whether you know, now that we sort of have some science to apply to it, that you know, maybe other docs are sort of trusting what we do more. I think that's the case. And I think that we are very quickly, faster than I ever thought would have been possible a few years ago, we're very quickly moving in the direction of making more informed decisions about how to treat women with ER positive, particularly node negative breast cancer. What I see happening over the next few years is that much of what's happened in the node negative setting will begin to move into the node positive setting as well once we have data from tests like Oncotype DX in the node positive setting. I think until we have those data, most people are pretty uncomfortable backing off on chemotherapy in a lot of those patients, although selectively it also has started to happen. Now, did you see Laurie Goldstein's poster looking at Oncotype and node positive patients? I did see that, and this is from Laurie Goldstein's ECOG trial in which women who had either node negative disease or one to three positive nodes were randomized to receive either AC or AT, adriamycin docetaxel, each of those regimens being administered for four cycles. And as people know, in that trial, there did not seem to be any advantage for AT over AC. There was a slight suggestion that in women with ER negative disease that the substitution of taxotere for cyclophosphamide might offer a slight advantage, but again, overall no benefit. And what they showed in the poster was that in this study, Oncotype DX was prognostic as it has been before. They didn't have the opportunity to look at chemotherapy versus not because everybody received chemotherapy. And if I remember correctly, they actually showed very, very minimal difference in terms of prognosis between patients who had node negative and patients who had one node positive tumors. I guess the thing we really want to find out, I guess, from a practical perspective, just like with node negatives, are there patients with node positive disease that we could get away with not giving chemo to? Yeah. Of course, that couldn't be addressed within Lori Goldstein's study. But it's very hard for me to believe that biology is going to be fundamentally different in node positive than node negative patients. What will vary will be two things. One is that in women with node positive disease, a higher proportion of the tumors will be higher grade tumors, tumors that potentially will benefit more from chemotherapy. And the other thing, of course, that will be different is that if we're talking about the recurrence score, a given recurrence score will map to a different level of recurrence in women with multiple positive nodes than in those with node negative disease. But the bigger issue is whether chemotherapy will change that or not, and that's something that remains to be seen, but we'll be able to investigate in those studies. Okay, let's get back to HER2 positivity and maybe talk a little bit about Abstract 1004 by Jose Pizalgo looking at pertuzumab. 
So this is a study that is a multi-center study because I believe the study is actually ongoing and is a study that is looking at the combination of pertuzumab, another monoclonal antibody given in conjunction with trastuzumab in patients who have HER2-positive breast cancer that has progressed in spite of prior trastuzumab therapy. Pertuzumab is an interesting molecule and that it prevents heterodimerization of HER2 with either HER1 or with HER3. It was initially looked at in patients with HER2-negative disease, and my understanding is that those studies were largely unexciting in terms of their results in breast cancer. But in this study, combining the two drugs together in women with HER2-positive disease that had previously progressed on trastuzumab, that there was some degree of clinical activity with a response rate that was between 15 and 20%. So it's an interesting drug. It is not terribly surprising to a lot of people that this drug had activity because more and more there's been talk about the role of HER2, HER3 heterodimerization, particularly as a mechanism of resistance to trastuzumab. Now, what's the current thinking in terms of mechanism of action of trastuzumab? I don't know that the thinking on the mechanism of action to trastuzumab has evolved so very much. I think there are still a lot of questions. There are also, importantly, many questions about resistance to trastuzumab. And there, you know, there are many, many unanswered questions. The one thing that I think we do somewhat know is that most tumors that are HER2 positive don't seem to lose that HER2 positivity when they become resistant to trastuzumab. And to what extent resistance to trastuzumab arises from one mechanism versus many different mechanisms is unclear, although it's thought that there are many potential mechanisms that are operative in different patients, including preferential dimerization with either HER1 or with HER3, activation of other signaling pathways, and in particular, there's a great deal of interest in P10 loss and the activation of the PI3 kinase pathway and some suggestion that HER2, HER3 heterodimerization may play a role there as well. I hate to even ask this, but where does apoptosis fit in? Because this whole thing is like a mystery to me. Right. So I think that many of these mechanisms involve limiting the ability of the cancer cell to apoptose in response to trastuzumab so that these resistance mechanisms lead to enhanced cell survival. What about pertuzumab as a single agent? I don't think in HER2-positive disease, pertuzumab has been studied as a single agent, so I can't really comment about it. I do believe that the study in patients with HER2-negative disease was with pertuzumab as a single agent, and there, again, to my knowledge, there was relatively little activity. Shifting from the biologic back to the more conventional, there was a presentation by Mark Pegram of the BCRG 007 trial looking at trastuzumab docetaxel with or without carbo and metastatic disease. What were your thoughts on that one? This is the study that was initially presented at ASCO last year by John Forbes, updated by Mark Pegram. This year, the results were not substantially different. They were a little more mature, and I suppose these are the final results This is a trial that was conducted in approximately 230 women with HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer who were randomized to receive either docetaxel-trastuzumab or docetaxel-trastuzumab and carboplatin. For what it's worth, the docetaxel-trastuzumab-treated patients received a higher dose of docetaxel, 100 milligrams per meter squared, than those who received the combination where docetaxel was administered at a dose of 75 milligrams per meter squared. Bottom line is that from an efficacy standpoint, the two regimens were essentially identical in terms of response rates, time to progression, and overall survival. There was a different toxicity profile with the two regimens. Women who received docetaxel and trastuzumab, probably because they received a higher dose of docetaxel, had more significant myelosuppression Women, on the other hand, who received docetaxel and carboplatin had a range of other toxicities. Overall, though, the sense was that the TCH treatment was certainly no more toxic. In my mind, though, the real question is, could women have gotten away just as well with the lower dose of docetaxel without carboplatin and with trastuzumab? I don't know the answer to that question, but my hunch is 
that that might ultimately be the winner in terms of producing the same efficacy and the lowest level of toxicity. Another paper in HER2 positive disease was CALGB 15002, which looked at HER2 and chromosome copy number in the CALGB 9840 trial that Dr. Kaufman presented. Can you talk about that? This was a retrospective analysis of our CLGB study that I mentioned earlier. This is the trial conducted by Andy Seidman that randomized women to either weekly or every three-week paclitaxel. And for those women who had HER2-positive disease, trastuzumab was given with the paclitaxel. For those women who had HER2-negative disease, there was a randomization to trastuzumab or not. There are really two findings from this analysis. One was that among women who had HER2-positive disease, that there was some suggestion that the FISH ratio was associated with response to trastuzumab or to the trastuzumab-containing regimen, and specifically that women who had higher FISH scores had a somewhat higher response rate than women who had lower levels of gene amplification. The numbers were small. The data to date that have been presented in terms of the influence of copy number and response to trastuzumab have been inconsistent. And at this point in time, I think it's fair to say that we don't know with any certainty that higher degrees of amplification are associated with a greater response, although this study would suggest that perhaps that's the case. The more interesting finding here, though, was that among those patients who had FISH-negative disease, a small proportion of them were found to have polysomy of chromosome 17, so extra copies of chromosome 17. When there are extra copies of chromosome 17, there are therefore extra copies of the HER2 gene as well. So these are patients who have FISH scores that aren't elevated because the FISH score is corrected for the number of copies of the chromosome, but they still have more than the usual number of copies of the HER2 gene. And within this very small retrospective analysis, there was the suggestion that women who had polysomy of chromosome 17, that the response rates for paclitaxel plus trastuzumab were higher than paclitaxel alone. Interesting. Now, this is not something that should be used in clinical practice at the moment. People should not go and ask in the setting of a negative FISH score if there's polysomy of chromosome 17 and turn around and use trastuzumab if that's the case but this is a finding that deserves follow-up in other trials. Okay, I want to just sort of briefly go through a few others. We're picking up a pretty good pace here. Let's talk about Vicente Valero's paper on BCRG007 and serum HER2 levels in women with HER2 amplified breast cancer. I think this is pretty simple, and I think this study says that the role of measuring ECD as a marker in the setting of treatment with trastuzumab is entirely unclear and is consistent with the fact that most of us don't get HER2-ECD as a way of following patients. Abstract 1028, again, getting back to pertuzumab and specifically looking at the issue of cardiac events in the trastuzumab-pertuzumab study. So my quick reading of this paper suggested that the combination of pertuzumab and trastuzumab might be associated with a little more cardiac toxicity than seemed to be apparent from Jose Bazelga's presentation, probably deserves more follow-up. Final results of ECOG 1100, abstract 1033, looking at the issue of combined blockade of ERB2. This study has been previously presented. This was a phase two trial that looked at the combination of ERISA and trastuzumab. In this report, they indicated that it appeared to be a regimen that overall was adequately tolerated, but there was certainly no suggestion of enhanced activity with the combination of an anti-HER1 and anti-HER2 agent compared to historically what's been seen with trastuzumab alone. And I guess those agents just haven't played out very much in breast cancer. In my mind, agents like Arisa and Tarsiva have simply not been shown to have a role in breast cancer. The studies that were initially done were unselected studies using these drugs as single agents. And within those kinds of studies, it's easy to miss something that said, when we've looked further, we just haven't found anything. I think we can look forward to a paper from Lisa Carey that will probably be presented. It's been submitted to San Antonio looking at cetuximab in women with triple negative breast cancer, and we'll have to see what that shows. Do you know what it shows? I don't know the overall results. It's cetuximab alone? 
This is from a trial that Lisa Carey led in the TBCRC, which is the Translational Breast Cancer Research Consortium, and was a randomized phase two trial of cetuximab alone versus cetuximab plus carboplatin in women with triple negative breast cancer. The rationale for this is that EGFR appears to be overexpressed in a fairly high proportion of women who have triple negative breast cancer. Hmm, interesting. Finally, our old friend, continuing trastuzumab beyond disease progression, which was discussed in abstract 1066. So this is another one of the many retrospective studies that have looked at the use of trastuzumab after disease progression. These studies are a mixed bag. Some have suggested that there's benefit continuing trastuzumab after disease progression. Others have suggested that there is not benefit. This study concluded that there appeared to be some benefit continuing trastuzumab after disease progression. The fact is we don't have any solid prospective data in spite of the fact that many U.S. clinicians have certainly opted to continue trastuzumab after disease progression on a trastuzumab-containing regimen. I will confess that in practice, I don't do it all of the time, but I do it with some frequency. And some might argue that the fact that lapatinib plus capecitabine was better than capecitabine alone suggests that some degree of suppression of HER2 may be important after trastuzumab progression, whether that can only be achieved with a different agent or whether that can be achieved with trastuzumab as well, we don't know. What are you doing right now in your practice in a non-protocol setting in terms of integration of lapatinib and how do you factor in prior trastuzumab? Pretty much using lapatinib in the manner in which it was used in the trial and pretty much according to the label. That is, that in women who have been on trastuzumab and have developed disease progression, I'm tending to use lapatinib plus capecitabine as the next regimen. I think the one exception to that would be in patients who have brain metastases. We had presented some data both at last year's ASCO and then a larger study at this year's ASCO indicating that there is clearly some low-level activity for lapatinib monotherapy in that situation. And so in a woman who has CNS disease from her HER2-positive breast cancer has received prior radiation, that is one situation where I would consider using lapatinib as a single agent. But I think it's worth noting that one could also argue in such a woman who has not received capecitabine before to use capecitabine plus lapatinib in that situation since it's approved for progressive disease after trastuzumab. Does that apply also if the patient's never had trastuzumab? So in patients who have never had trastuzumab, the only situation where I would use lapatinib would be in someone who had progressive CNS disease after radiation. And I can't imagine that situation since virtually all of those patients should have received prior trastuzumab. I'm kind of curious, have you had a lot of patients or any patients or a few patients that, I don't know if they stick out in your mind, who develop relapse in spite of receiving adjuvant trastuzumab? I have, in my own practice, a very small number of such patients. I can think of one person in particular who participated in the adjuvant trial and who a couple of years later developed recurrent disease in her liver the interval between the completion of her trastuzumab and the development of metastatic disease was just a little more than two years. This was before lapatinib was available, so there was really no discussion as to what we were going to do. She went on a trial with ixobepalone and trastuzumab, a trial that's supported by the NCI that we have, and had a very, very nice response I think generally speaking, in most patients who have had adjuvant trastuzumab and have had a reasonable disease-free interval, my approach is going to be to use trastuzumab again and then to use lapatinib when there is disease progression. I think the exception to that will be the patient, obviously, who develops disease progression on adjuvant trastuzumab or the woman who develops disease progression pretty shortly after completing trastuzumab, so let's say within the first year after completion of adjuvant therapy. And in those patients, I think I would be a little more inclined to use lapatinib. 
I was also reflecting back on whether or not trastuzumab, and of course in your case you participated in the trial, so you started using it much earlier, has had a palpable effect on your practice. I mean, do you think there's been enough follow-up that you can sort of say in your own mind, I think there's a bunch of people in my practice who if I hadn't participated in the trials or if we hadn't started using trastuzumab, I would have relapsed by now? As a center, we enrolled about 90 women in preoperative trastuzumab trials before the results of the adjuvant trials were widely available. And I have to believe that some proportion of those women would have had recurrent disease. In terms of telling whether it's really had an impact on our practice, I don't know that I can say that. We still have a surprisingly large number of women who have HER2-positive metastatic disease. Some of that, unfortunately, is because HER2-positive disease actually presents as metastatic disease in a proportion of patients. Some have said that that may be as many as 25 or 30% of all patients with HER2-positive disease that they'll present with metastatic disease. I don't know for sure that it's quite so common as that, but there are clearly still patients with the best screening and with the most sophisticated care who will de novo present with stage 4 HER2-positive disease So I don't think that's a problem that's going away entirely. It's interesting because, you know, the figure I've been hearing for decades almost is like 5 or 10% women present overall with metastatic disease. You think that still holds? I think 5 or 10%, probably 5% in most areas and 10% or more in areas where there are significant health disparities probably holds true. And I don't have any reason to think that women with HER2-positive disease might not be a little bit more commonly represented there meaning that you know, HER2-positive breast cancer is aggressive breast cancer. And it makes sense that of all women who present with stage 4 disease, a higher proportion should have HER2-positive disease. But I don't know that for certain. And I think that this does underscore the fact that you know, as we have better and better therapies, since some of the reason women present with stage 4 disease is because they've had inadequate access to the healthcare system, that it becomes ever more important for us to assure that women across the U.S. and ultimately across the world have reasonable access to health care. It would be interesting to look at these patients. I mean, it's a lot of people because breast cancer is so common. And I don't know that anybody's actually looked at the tumor characteristics of these patients. I think a lot of us have the idea that, as you say, some of these people haven't been able to access or didn't want to access the system but I don't know that I've ever seen a breakdown in terms of HER2 positivity in those patients. Yeah, so that 30% figure that I mentioned actually comes from some of the studies that Genentech has done in the first-line setting, looking at whether patients had previously received treatment in the adjuvant setting or Hmm. were presenting de novo in the stage 4 setting, but that's not the best way to look at it. And to look at it, one would have to drill down into some of the SEER data or some such database And I think it's going to be important to do. I actually do think that I've seen some data that would suggest that there isn't nearly as high a proportion of HER2-positive disease in that setting as some might expect. 